Well, this morning we're continuing a, a series that we've been doing on the, from the book of James called Show Me It's Real. And we've said that today Christians are often more known for uh, the political stances they take and the beliefs they defend uh, rather than the, the good that they do and uh, the, the love that they seek to show. And so this series is sought to look at what true faith is, how we can discern it, how we know that we have it. And uh, this morning we are going to uh, really the heart of this letter and perhaps one of the most famous passages in the book and uh, trying to look at dead faith and in particular when Christians act like zombies. Now, we can't talk about zombies without uh, starting at the beginning. So most people today recognize the 1968 cult classic Night of the Living Dead as the movie that made zombies mainstream. Uh, Obviously, it didn't end there, though. So it's been followed by uh, The Dawn of the Dead, more recently The Walking Dead, House of the Dead. Um, You've had, getting back, I'll age myself, Michael Jackson's Thriller. Uh, More recently, the uh, the Korean hit, uh, The uh, train, uh, Train to Busan. And all of, all of this, it isn't just uh, here in one isolated part around the world. There is this fascination with zombies. Uh, even here in Toronto, we have made our mark in this particular genre. Uh, back in 2003, uh, Toronto hosted the world's first ever zombie march. And uh, this continued every year at its peak before uh, funding ran out. Uh, They were attracting 15,000 people for their annual marches. And this, too, spread around the globe. Uh, People dressing up like they were dead or undead or whatever you want to call them. And uh, just speaking to this, uh, uh, this fascination. Now, uh, the organizer for that march here in Toronto, a woman by the name of uh, Thea Munster, uh, she did change her last name, of course, uh, she explains her motivation. She says, I always think of myself as a loner, and that's why I related to monsters in the first place. When I saw zombies, it was just a number of monsters together who were outcasts who came together to form a group. And to me, that was a very attractive idea I wanted to find that sense of community. Now, I'm not surprised that many people, and in fact thousands of people presumably, have uh, found in Thea Munster's vision a sense of resonance. That they they feel themselves attracted to, um, you know, I'm an outcast, I can find here uh, a community that will accept me, a place where I feel like I can be uh, a part of things and, and accepted in that way. And uh, while I'm not surprised that many people have found that vision attractive, the question I'm asking this morning is, how do we know that that's not our motivation to be here today? How do we know that we aren't a little bit like the people that show up for the zombie march in that uh, we are attracted by a sense of community, we kind of want to find a place where uh, we might belong, but when it comes to our faith, it's more kind of like the the living dead. It's kind of like uh, people with uh, some, we, we believe something, 
But that, that faith that we have is not alive. It is a, a, a dead thing that isn't producing uh, what we would want for ourselves and for the people around us. And so this morning we're trying to, to, to assess our, ourselves, do a little bit of diagnosis of our own heart, our own faith, and the reality of these things that we claim to believe. And to do that, we're turning to James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, uh, and the Black Church Bibles under the rack, uh, and the rack under the seat in front of you, it's on page 951. And if you have that open in front of you, it's going to help you as we just walk right through that uh, passage this morning. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have works, and you, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of God. Now, what James does in this passage is he, he gives us four examples, kind of lines up uh, these examples of faith, and he does so to help us to, to, to kind of compare ourselves to these people and to, to kind of do some diagnosis for ourselves. So uh, the first two are what I'll call church zombies. They are examples of dead faith. And the, two, the, the, the last two are examples of living faith, a, a, a kind of faith that translates into actual uh, life change and good works. So the first thing you learn about church zombies is that they are all talk and no action. There's a disconnect between what they say they believe and how they actually live. And so those things don't line up, and he's saying, that's a problem. So church zombies all talk, no action. Now, verse 14 has caused the church plenty of confusion over the, over the years because the Protestant church has taught that when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, God relates to us on the basis of his righteousness, not our own. That through faith in Jesus, even as we have been singing this morning, we receive Christ's righteousness. We are covered by Christ's righteousness. And so when God sees us, he sees us as if we had never sinned, as if uh, we had lived a life of perfect obedience. But 
when we get to verse 14, it seems like James might be saying something different. It says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Some people think, I think James is confused here. Is he saying you have to have faith in Jesus plus a certain number of spiritual and religious points in order to be accepted? Is that what he's saying? Is it faith plus works equals salvation? Is that the formula for our relationship with God? And that's not his point at all. Here, as you, as you look in what, he's, what he says in verse 14, he's talking about someone who says he has faith, but there is something suspect about that claim. It's a person who talks a good game, but there's no evidence that the faith is real, that the faith is alive. It's not a question of whether faith can save a person, but as you look closely, he says whether that faith can save him, whether all talk, no action faith can save a person. And his conclusion is absolutely not. Faith, can, faith alone saves a person, but not all talk and no action faith. That's not the kind of faith that can uh, save a person. In fact, that's what he calls dead faith in verse 17. He, he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This is zombie faith. You say you believe something, but I'm looking at your life, and it really isn't adding up to what you claim to believe. Here, we're, 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 we're recognizing you can have dead faith and still make some fairly significant claims for yourself. Uh, you can have dead faith, you can have zombie faith at the same time that you, uh, you claim to believe in Jesus. Uh, you claim to, to be very um, earnest in religious attendance. You can have zombie faith and uh, have lots of Bibles. Uh, maybe you read the Bibles. Maybe you, you do lots of underlining and circling and notes in the margin. Uh, you can do all of those things uh, but not have living faith, not have a, a dynamic faith. James is worried that this might feel a little abstract, and maybe some of you are feeling that this morning. It's, you're explaining a concept, Paul. Help me understand how this is fleshed out. So in order to get this clear, he then gives us an example of someone with this zombie faith that he's been talking about. So in verse 15 and 16, a person with empty words and dead faith come, is, is pictured, and a fellow believer comes along, and they've, they approach him with some, some needs. It says that they are poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. Now, just to clarify, when it says they are poorly clothed, we're not supposed to picture someone like Dwight from the, from the office. He, he just has a very poor sense of style. He doesn't, doesn't know how to dress. No, that's not the word that's being used here. Uh, the word is actually usually translated as naked. Um, and he probably isn't completely naked here, but he's probably wearing a threadbare undergarment, certainly doesn't have uh, uh, adequate clothing to sleep at night. He wouldn't have an, uh, an outer covering, a, a cloak, uh, something that would keep him warm when it's cold. Uh, and uh, so th that's what we're talking about when we say poorly clothed. 
Then when it says he's lacking in daily food, this is someone who is in such need that he is frequently going without meals, frequently finding himself uh, at the end of the day not having been able to uh, had enough uh, enough to to uh, eat a meal, having having gone hungry and fallen on hard times. In that kind of situation, someone you sat down beside them at church. You know them, you have seen their situation, you see how they're dressed, you see the needs that they have, and this person is looking for mercy. The zombie faith, or the dead faith response, comes in verse 16. It says, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Now, go in peace was a common uh, Jewish greeting for how, how you would respond to someone when you were, uh, when you were parting. Uh, here, it's a way of saying, uh, you know, you'd better be going now. I, we've, I've, I've had enough of our little uh, greetings, our little conversation. You can be on your way. But he doesn't just say, okay, you can go now. He adds, be warmed and filled. Uh, and and that, that sounds like a prayer. It sounds like a spiritual uh, note that he's added to this. But... If the guy is wearing a threadbare undergarment and doesn't have an, doesn't have food, how do you expect him to be ever getting warm or being filled? What started off sounding like a spiritual uh, statement or maybe even a prayer now feels cruel when you see the circumstances that uh, this individual is in. And so... We're, we're to picture, that when, when James is talking about zombie faith or dead faith, this is what he's talking about. And we're to look at this example and ask some questions about the genuineness or the reality of our own faith. Is our faith all talk and no action? Now, social media has made this almost our default response today. I read recently of one study where they had taken the first 100,000 members. So it wasn't a small sample size. They had invested a considerable amount of time in a, the Save Darfur Facebook group. They had over 1.2 million members. They decided to do some analysis of the first 100,000 of them. And what they found was that although the people in this Facebook group had uh, had joined the group because they were they were deeply concerned about the situation in Western Sudan. They were they were eager to to bring uh, relief and change and 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 to stand up for the people that were receive were on the receiving end of genocide. Although they had expressed that deep concern, they found that of the first hundred thousand members that they studied, ninety nine point eight percent of them did nothing to support the cause, didn't donate a cent, didn't do anything tangible to express real hard uh, support for people who weren't just, you know, having a hard time. They were, you know, their people were, were on the receiving end of genocide. And I think we need to ask ourselves a question because this is the culture, this is the, the age that we're living in. Is it possible that I've done the same thing with Jesus? Could I, have, could I have 
actually just given him a like without ever expressing any commitment? Could I have just kind of thrown up my hand and said, yeah, I'm, I'm a part of his cause without ever actually giving anything to it? And so when we're asking these questions about zombie faith, dead faith, and real faith, that's the kind of question that we're asking for ourselves. Is there anything real about this? Is it translating into action? Because if it's just giving Jesus a like, that kind of faith doesn't ever save anybody. It doesn't, it's not real. It, it's something, it's, it might be zombie faith, and maybe that's good enough to get into a parade somewhere, but it, it doesn't translate into what the Bible describes as faith. It's not genuine faith. It's not saving faith. Now, chances are, if you're listening to this sermon, you'd probably say, hey, Paul, I've got faith. I, I'm into Jesus. Like, if, if, if I was given a multiple choice, that's the, one I'm, that's the religion I'm going with. But is your faith in Jesus saving faith? Is it a faith that translates into action? What does your life say about who's really in charge of your life? About who's really directing, uh, di- directing the course of your life? Does your faith move you to respond to others in mercy? Does your, uh, does your faith make you generous and gracious to uh, others around you? When was the last time you reached out in a practical expression of kindness or goodness to someone in this church? When was the last time that you responded out of a response of your faith, it made a move, took a step, and did something out of pure obedience to God and his will for your life? When we're talking about True faith, genuine faith, biblical faith, that's what we're talking about. And we need to recognize, as the Saved Our Four Facebook group reminds us, that is not the commitment. Com- commitment is not a, a normal or natural part of our, uh, of our culture today. And so it would be very easy for you and I to throw up our hand without following it with action, without practical steps. So zombie faith never saved anyone. Now, from there, we, we go recognizing, okay, church zombies, all talk and no action. Uh, then we, he, he gets in a little more detail and, and tells us church zombies have good theology, but a terrible lifestyle. They often have the right head knowledge, They can answer the right questions. Uh, They can give you the right answers, but they haven't been able to translate those answers or that head knowledge into actually how they are living, living that out. They have good theology, but a terrible lifestyle. Now, in verse 18, he presents us with someone who says, you have faith and I have works. Now, the, the point here is it's a person who just sees them as separate categories. Um, you're just into works, I'm into faith. Uh, sees them as, as kind of uh, two distinct categories. They not, not necessarily have anything to do with each other. And James says, no, 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 that's not how it works. When we're talking about biblical faith, 
works come alongside that as a package. You can't really divide them up. They belong together. In verse 19, he gives us an example. Again, if that's too abstract for you, let's talk about demons. Let's talk about the faith of demons here. So he, he gives demons as an example of someone with uh, great theology, terrible lifestyle. He says this, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, when you hear that phrase, God is one, it is not just a throwaway term. Uh, it, it, it's taken straight out of Deuteronomy 6.4. It's part of the, the beginning part of the first line of what is uh, on that little piece of paper inside the mezuzah on the door of uh, uh, most Jewish homes today. And the reason that that little piece of paper in this verse is quoted on uh, in, inside the mezuzah is that this is central to uh, the, 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 the faith of the, the Hebrew scriptures. So God is one, good theology. There aren't a thousand gods. There aren't uh, a million gods. God is one was a declaration of orthodox faith. This is a good, good theology. It's a correct answer. But what he's saying is, even the demons have figured out that much. Even they can give the right answers about what God is like and how we are to understand him. And I'm wondering whether you've ever given much thought to just how good the theology of demons really is. Uh, demons, for instance, believe that there's only one God. They believe in the Trinity. They know that Jesus died on the cross uh, they, were, they were there, they witnessed the fall of Adam and Eve, they've, they've seen the flood, they've witnessed Jesus' miracles. They have some significant biblical knowledge. But beyond that, when Satan came and tempted Jesus directly, you saw how he used scripture in doing so. So not only have they witnessed some things historically, but they have first-hand knowledge of the scriptures and uh, can use it to their own advantage. So demons would, if we were going to have a little test this morning, they'd win all the memory challenges. They'd be able to quote all the verses that you're like, oh, it's somewhere in Philippians, I think. Where is that? No, no, the demons have got the answer. They, they, they know that. They have significant biblical knowledge. But uh, despite having all that knowledge, the knowledge hasn't changed them. It says here that they shudder. They're like, ah! they, they shudder rightly at what awaits them. They recognize just knowing the knowledge without living the lifestyle is, is the kind of faith that, that warrants them receiving eternal judgment. And so they shudder at what is to come. The problem is, while the demons have got that right, while they at least know, hey, having all the right answers doesn't count for anything with God, it has to be translated into your life, while the de demons have at least got that much figured out, he's saying there's some people in church that are, they don't even have that much. They have the zombie faith, but they don't realize that that's not that's not what the Bible is talking about. 
That's not what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to something real, and real faith, living faith, actually gets translated into how you live. So, so far we said church zombies, all talk and no action. Uh, Church zombies have uh, good theology, terrible lifestyle. And so he's given us those examples of this is not how it's supposed to be. Now he's going to give us two examples of true faith or living faith. With saving faith, actions speak louder than words. That what we believe is translated into actual life change, practical steps of obedience in our lives. Your faith in Jesus is evidenced by the works of Jesus. Saving faith means actions speak louder than words. Now, James gives gives us two examples. He starts with Abraham, and then he goes to Rahab. Starts with a man, then, then a woman. He starts with a religious Jew, then he gives us a Canaanite prostitute. And by giving us these two completely different uh, examples, it's his way of saying it's this and it's that and it's everything in between. It doesn't matter the externals. It matters what you can see about the reality of these faith by the change that's taken place in their lives. So let's start with Abraham. He's given to us in verse 21. James writes this. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Now, Abraham, uh, if I could give you a short uh, history lesson, a short recap for those of you who are kind of coming up to speed here, Abraham was that, that one who was called to leave everything. Leave your home, go to this place that I will, that I will bring you to. He was promised the promised land. Early in his walk with God, Abraham believed in the Lord. He put his trust in him. And God said, on the basis of that faith, he was declared righteous. Genesis 15, 6 famously says, and he believed, referring to Abraham, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteous. God counted him as righteous even though he wasn't. That's the implication. Abraham, not righteous on his own. None of us are. We we don't measure up to God's holy, perfect standard. Not righteous on his own, but because he put his trust in God, his promises, and his purposes for him, he received righteousness. He was considered righteous, counted righteous. And that's what that verse is saying. But James wants, us to, wants to point out how different Abraham's faith is from zombie faith, from dead faith. And so he then takes us forward uh, to uh, Genesis chapter 22, and one of the uh, events in Abraham's life that shows that his faith was, was actually alive, that it wasn't a dead faith. Uh, so he points to, to that event where after waiting what, for what seemed like forever for God to provide finally a child, God said, take that child, take him up Mount Moriah, and I want, him, want you to sacrifice him to, for, to me. And you're like, what kind of a command is that? How could that, that that's too much for God to ask. That's too big of a, a, of a challenge. 
And yet Abraham responded. He goes up the mountain. He takes out the dagger. It looks like he's actually going to kill his only son. And at the last minute, God says, uh, now I know that you fear God. Now I know that your faith is real. Now I know that you weren't all just talk. There's a reality to your faith. And of course, I never intended for you to actually sacrifice your son. Of course, my plan all along was to rescue and to deliver him. But I wanted to see whether your faith was real. I wanted to see whether your love for me was just talk or whether it would be accompanied by action. And so he gives him, he gives Abraham as this example to us of this is what living faith looks like. It is putting your trust in, in, in this God who commits to saving us, but then as an expression of that faith, if it's real, it's going to get translated into obedience to the Lord, doing what he says, responding to his word, giving him the honor that he deserves. And so we're supposed to look at Abraham and say, oh, I get it. That's what real faith is like. Is that the kind of faith that I've got? Is that what's happening in my life? Is faith being translated into obedience? Am Am I responding to God and his word? Am I giving him the honor that he deserves? Now, from Abraham, he moves to Rahab. And as we said, uh, Rahab, Canaanite woman, uh, she, was, uh, she was among the people who it was a, a time and a place where the people had gone so far into sin, so much injustice, so much degradation that God said, time's up, judgment will come. And Rahab was a prostitute in the city of Jericho, and so presumably she wasn't the most moral of the people that were uh, in this city destined for judgment. But before the judgment came, Jewish spies were first sent in, and uh, they, they, were, they were doing a survey of the land before it was about to be destroyed. When they arrived, they were received and hidden by the prostitute Rahab. At one point, she says to them this, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Everyone could see that the power of God was on display. Everyone recognized that the God of Israel was a God of might, a God of deliverance, a God of holiness. Everybody recognized that. But Rahab not only recognized that, that faith moved her to act. And at great personal cost to herself, she acted to rescue two of God's people. The king uh, that was in uh, Jericho, he presumably believed the same thing. He presumably believed the God of Israel. Why? He's powerful. Boy, he is a holy God. But his faith 
moved him to seek to kill the spies, seek to uh, deny them safety, seek to act against in rebellion against this God, and uh, he received God's judgment as a result. And so we're supposed to look to Rahab, look to Abraham and say, that's what real faith does. That's what it looks like. That it, it gets translated into how we live into how we respond to the people around us. Faith needs to lead to action. It needs to to have legs. It needs to move in response to the needs that we see around around us. And so we look at them and we're asking ourselves a question, having seen two examples of church zombies, two examples of living faith, we're looking at our own hearts and lives and saying, what is my faith? What do I believe? How, how is what I believe being translated into how I live? The anthropologist Margaret Mead was once asked, what is the earliest sign of civilization? What do you look for? When you have come across a new people group and you're trying to study the history of that civilization, what do you look for? And you would think that they would say, well, I'm looking for maybe little, uh, some pottery, some, some tools or implements, maybe an arrowhead, uh, maybe a grinding stone. Uh, maybe that would be the earliest sign of civilization. And interestingly, she, she didn't refer to any of those things. She said, it's a healed femur. If the, the femur bone, if I see a skeleton in a civilization of a broken femur that has been healed, that means that uh, people had to do the hunting for that individual. They had to do the gathering for that individual while they recovered. And that's the first sign of, of civilization. When I see examples of compassion in a group of people, I, I know that that there is true civilization. There's true community. There's something real happening in uh, their relationships with one another. And I think the same thing could be said of our faith. Compassion uh, is one of the first evidences of the genuineness of our faith. How are we responding to the needs that we see around us? How are we giving ourselves to, uh, to, to, uh, to, to people? How are we responding in obedience to God? We don't say someone's faith is genuine just because they maintain some bare standard of morality. That's different than what we're talking about here, right? You can't look at Abraham or Rahab and say, oh, it just, just kind of be nice when you can no, their, their faith was different than that. It, it, is, it was expressed in radical obedience to God. It was, it was expressed in sacrificial love towards others. And it's a recognition that this is not something that we need to add to our faith. This is a natural expression of genuine faith. If we have been on the receiving end of God's saving work in our lives, if we recognize how far short we have fallen with our sin and we have received the mercy of God and his forgiveness because Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, 
that has to change us. It has to change how we see the people around us. It has to change how we respond to needs around us. It has to change how we see the, the commands of God. We now see them as invitations to a, a, a life of a, a, a blessing because there is a God who loves us. It has to change us. And if it hasn't changed us, it's a recognition that maybe we didn't get the faith part right. Maybe we haven't actually trusted in, uh, in, in the Lord the way the scriptures call us to Maybe we've just given him a like the way those, the 99.8% of the Facebook members uh, did when they just kind of agreed with the cause. And, and so uh, we examine our, our hearts. Now, I want to close with two ways that you and I could misunderstand this passage because it, it would be easy for us to go away and do the wrong thing or respond to this in the wrong way, I, I think. So there are some of you who would say, I, I know that I have repented of my sins and put my trust in Jesus Christ. According to the Bible, that's how you're saved. It, 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 it is through repentance and faith alone. And you would say, Paul, I see change in my life. I see fruit in my life. I, I see uh, steps of obedience that I've taken in response to what God is doing in my life. I, 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 can, see, I can see growth, but honestly, as you were talking about Abraham and, and, and that level of sacrifice and obedience, I'm like, I, I don't know what I would do in that situation. I don't know, I don't know how I'd respond. And, and what I would say to you is, if you are seeing growth in your life, if you are th- seeing steps of obedience, ways that you were, are demonstrating love, sacrificing for other people, I would remind you that Abraham wasn't always knocking it out of the park. I would remind you that he's held up as an example, and we've highlighted this example of radical obedience in his life. But if you read the rest of the story of his life, you know that he had his ups, he had his downs as well. And so I, I, would, I would see in, in this the recognition that this is a passage intended to give you assurance, to, to give you the, the, the reassurance that, yes, I see fruit in my life. Yes, I see a, a change. Yes, I see growth. Not just 10, 20 years ago. No, I, I see it ongoing. But boy, I wish it was, it was quicker. I wish it was more. Uh, I wish that I was more faithful. And I would just give you the, 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 the encouragement of Scripture that this is God's way of affirming that your faith is real and there's something alive uh, to your faith. At the same time, if the dead faith of people around you has affected you, then let the clarity of this passage move you to radical obedience, move you to sacrificial love, move you to take steps in response to what he has done. But there are probably others of you who aren't so sure. If you're honest, nobody's about to accuse you of having the faith of Abraham, right? If you were honest... You've, you've never really 
done much in response to what you say you believe. You're not a, you're not a criminal. You're not a terrible person. Uh, you're, you're pretty nice and normal. But you know that obedience to God and his word has just never been a priority for you. That's just not on the radar of how you live your life and how you make your decisions. And what you might be tempted to do, and this is a misunderstanding, what you might be tempted to do is hear a message like this and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little nice deed for someone sometime this month. What you might be tempted to do is just add a little bit of, I don't know, some, you got a little bit of inspiration this morning. I'm not really into, you know, doing this full time, but I'll, I'll, I'll add a little something to to, uh, to, to my, my life this, this month. And um, let me suggest that that would be like trying to, to duct tape fruit onto a dead tree. That, that's not how you bring about life where there is death. If there is, if there is dead faith, you do not turn it into living faith by just trying to stick something on the outside that you have to deal with the root. If your faith is dead, you come in repentance before the one who gives life. You turn to him and receive from him what he wants to do in your life. You, you look to him and you confess ways where your, your love has fallen short, your faith has fallen short, and you recognize, I don't think I've really ever biblically believed you. I've just given you an endorsement. I've just given you a like, a preference, and you've called for my life. And so turn to him this morning. Look to Jesus for forgiveness. Look for him for new life and the power that he gives by his spirit when we fully turn to him and give our lives into his hands. Let's look to him in prayer now. Oh, Heavenly Father, would you deliver us from false views of faith, wrong ways of thinking about what it means to believe and to respond to you. Keep us from using religious language to justify our own disobedience. And Father, if there's anyone here whose faith is dead, help them to see. Help them to come to Jesus for life. Assure them, comfort them even, that there can be true change through faith in Jesus Christ. You're the one who can change us. Father, we ask that you unleash in all of us the fruit of saving faith. Help us to choose obedience at all costs. Help us to choose to sacrifice ourselves in order to love others. May we be known for the depth of care and compassion that we show. And may the fragrance of Jesus mark our lives, our fellowship, and our witness. For we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.